The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. Asian equities extend declines with Japanese banks leading the losses as global financial stocks lose almost half a trillion dollars in market value in the wake of Silicon Valley banks collapse. U.S. banks post their worst day in three years as ratings agency Moody's places First Republic Bank and five other lenders on downgrade watch. Turmoil in the banking sector sparks a furious rally in U.S. government bonds, with the two-year Treasury yield seeing its biggest three-day decline since 1987. And a boon for crypto. U.S. measures to prop up the financial system drive Bitcoin and other crypto assets higher, easing fears of the sector's exposure to SVB. We will hear from the CEO of Circle, Jeremy Allaire, later this morning. Well, let's take stock of where we stand today, what we had on markets yesterday. Calmer across on the major boards, but underlying this market stress, very evident in quarters of the market, namely the banks and also on credit markets. So you can see the extent of the damage on the Dow reversing by about a third of a percent, a tenth down on the S&P, but the Nasdaq actually popping higher. So what we had over the weekend, very fast moving events, a new entity created around SVB, the uninsured deposits guaranteed, the uh, rescue of another bank as well, Signature Bank effectively uh, put into uh, an entity position as well, yet the market's still concerned, a special liquidity facility set up all this not enough to stop what is now heightened concerns around many of the regional banks, small lenders, and that stretches well beyond the United States. You can see the stress on markets. In terms of what we had on the major boards, though, it wasn't too downbeat. Much more contained. Third negative session in a row for the S&P 500. That said, you've got a market now reassessing the implications for monetary policy. Just what the Fed will do from here. That pathway now looking cloudy as many look at the event risk around financial markets. Let me take you to the banks. This was the concentration of risk. I'm showing you City out of the main banks. It was the one falling the most aggressively. U.S. banks, though, in total yesterday lost about $90 billion in stock market value, bringing the, the total loss over three trading sessions to about $190 billion. City itself down close to 7.5%. But one of the banks, uh, the real epicenter for the selling yesterday, was again in that smaller space, First Republic Bank. It was down to the tune of 61%. Moody's put the bank on downgrade watch along with a number of other major banks or other regional banks rather. All this when uh, First Republic Bank also secured additional financing from JP Morgan Chase. So despite some of the concerns out there, still you can see it reflected in the stock market action and uh, the ratings agencies coming into the equation as well. I want to take you to Treasuries because this was the repricing that we saw very aggressively on markets. Uh, the short end is where a lot of the action was in particular. We effectively saw uh, the market wagering that we've now hit a turning point for credit that uh, we saw on the one day aside the rally in bonds 
this was the, the biggest rally we've seen in bonds since 1987 as that yield moves sharply south. Just to give you an indication on those rates, we were traveling close to, to five odd percent uh, thereabouts uh, the other week, 4.12 where we are now trading on the spread between the 10 and the two year. We've all seen that, seen that shrink to minus 47.7. We're around 108.2 the other week as the market was looking at uh, the biggest inversion since 1981. That has all changed on a dime. You can see the 10 year now, 3.57 where we are at. Uh, this was around that 4% handle. So aggressively moving on the expectations that we will not have 50 basis points from the Fed at the next meeting. But then big question marks over the pathway from rates. Some in the market also and pricing and rate cuts again later this year after those were effectively taken off the table from Jay Powell's very hawkish testimony the other week. So the big question is, what happens from here for markets? Well, as investors dialed back those Fed rate expectations, we saw money flow out of the dollar. So the dollar index yesterday pulling back about 0.9%, its third negative session in a row. This morning, we've got to sterling trading uh, around 1.2%. I think this... Uh, Something's a little bit off with these boards right now. Uh, so we'll get you a check on how dollar crosses are holding up a little bit later. But now let me turn your attention to commodities where we saw investors put their money into gold yesterday fleeing for that safe haven asset. It rallied about 2.64%. WTI and Brent, meanwhile, pulled back close to 2.5% apiece. Now this morning we're seeing further losses in oil. Brent down about 1.25%. WTI down about one and a quarter as well to just under $74 a barrel. Meanwhile, spot gold is pulling back slightly this morning down about 0.5%. Again, that comes after yesterday's uh, pretty substantial gains for gold. As for European markets, Karen talked about how the concerns starting from the U.S. banking sector did spread uh, beyond, and we saw a substantial pullback in Europe yesterday. The stock 600, the main benchmark, dropping about 2.4%, its worst daily performance since June 2022. And as you can see here, the pullback was broad-based. Every major region participating, the underperformer was over in Italy, where the FTSE MIB pulled back about 4%. Now, like we saw in the U.S., the epicenter of the pain was the banking sector here in Europe. A couple names in particular that moved sharply lower. Commerce Bank dropped more than 10%. Credit Suisse also taking a heavy hit down about 10% yesterday as well. So lots of concern over whether there are risks lying beneath the surface for the European banks and also as investors um, rethink the ECB's rate path from here. And of course, if we do see uh, lower rates from the ECB than expected, then that would have a negative impact on the banking sector as well. As for Asian markets, overnight, we've got uh, red across the board. Uh, Hang Seng down 1.7%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan underperforming down about 2%. Shanghai Composite in the mainland also trading lower this morning. So, Juliana, despite these assurances from President Joe Biden to the Treasury, to Janet Yellen, to the Federal Reserve, right across to Europe as well from policymakers that the system is sound, we still have contagion fears in the system. So let's get over to JP to see how the Asian market is faring today. JP, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Karen. Yes, no doubt banks in the Asia-Pacific are also feeling the heat at the moment. You saw today lenders from Shanghai to Sydney really uh, losing ground again because of these contagion fears. But nobody is taking it on the chin more hardly, arguably, than some of these Japanese banks. And it has something to do also with the, these yields across the JGB yield curve really coming down. From the three months to the 30 year, you see it's all in the red. It's all uh, actually in decline and shifting lower for the most part. And that's also because of some of these concerns 
concerns that if the United, if the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve does decide to pause on rate hikes because of these concerns about about uh, financial conditions and financial uncertainties with regards to market conditions, this could also cause the Bank of Japan to take a step back and think maybe this is not the time to actually change or scrap the yield curve policy or even widen the band around the JGB yield curve, which means ultra low rates might be here to stay. And this might not be great for lenders in Japan because this means that net interest margins will have to be pegged once again to these low yield level yield levels and thus also weighing on the banks across Japan. It's very interesting to see the Japanese yen is weakening and softening today and usually that's good for the Nikkei 225 and the topics but so far they're also losing down. Take a look at the topics today plunging by about 2.7 percent. The bank index really taking a couple of punches to the gut 7.4 percent in the red but the other thing they're also worried about at the moment is how much in terms of U.S. bond holdings these banks in Japan actually have and this is a concern that was brought up when SVB actually fell because of the bond for portfolio and the unrealized losses weighing on them. Now a lot of analysts do say that these particular banks um, it, when you compare it to their holdings of domestic bonds it's not significant but, but right now everybody's a bit skittish about what these unrealized losses could be if you have exposure to these U.S. bonds because of these unrealized losses that did um, hit some of these, mid, uh, these commercial banks in the U.S. quite hard and this is a concern that's weighing on many. It'll be up to these banks now to communicate just how much this is if it's going to be material for the most part. Oh and we also have to highlight the other thing that might be weighing on the yield curve. Remember the Japanese bonds and also the Japanese yen are seen as a safe haven so we might also be seeing a bit of a flight to safety. That's what one economist told me but he did say this is not the major reason. The real major reason is that there are expectations perhaps or, or, or perhaps the probability that this event could cause the Bank of Japan under Kazuo Ueda when he takes over on August, in April 8 to perhaps um, not pause on any attempts to revise the yield curve policy and also some of these concerns about potential financial contagion really hurting these lenders out in Tokyo. Ladies, good morning. JP, thank you so much for breaking, at, breaking down the action for us. Now, shares in several U.S. regional banks suffered their worst daily route in three years. While the KRA Banks Index is down almost 20% week to date, its worst weekly performance since the start of the global financial crisis. This despite measures by regulators to backstop all customer deposits at collapse lenders, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and offer additional liquidity to others. However, fears remain over smaller banks, less diversified asset portfolios, as well as the threat of another customer run on deposits. Regulators stateside are still seeking a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank. According to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. Treasury could be planning a second auction for the collapsed lender after initial attempts over the weekend failed to find a suitor. Meanwhile, Bloomberg says asset manager Apollo could make a bid for SVB's credit portfolio, believed to be valued at over $73 billion. Markets are betting the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and route on global banking stocks will force central banks to rethink their hiking pathway. Following Goldman's call that the Fed will keep rates on hold at next week's meeting, Nomura now says it expects the Fed to cut rates by 25 basis points and put an end to quantitative tightening. Investors are still pricing in an 80% probability of the Fed hiking by 25 basis points next week, but expect it to cut rates by June. Speaking to our colleague stateside, Double Line Capital CEO Jeffrey Gunlach said he expects the Fed to stick to its hiking path next week, raising rates by 25 basis points, but says that would probably be the wrong move. The Fed at this point will probably raise just 25 basis points. Yeah, I would say at this point, the, the, the chance, things are happening so quickly that even though it's a week away, a little over a week away, anything can sort of happen. But things are happening so quickly. I, I just think that at this point, the Fed is not going to go 50. 
uh, I would think 25, and I know that people are wondering if they're going to go up at all. I, I just think to save kind of the, the program and their credibility, they'll probably raise rates 25 basis points. Citadel founder Ken Griffin has told the Financial Times he believes the U.S. administration's decision to intervene following the collapse of SVB marks a failure in American capitalism. He said the backstop on depositors' funds will only encourage a further lack of financial discipline and regulatory oversight. Let's get to Stephen Isaacs, chairman of the Investment Committee at Alvan Capital. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. We saw fairly dramatic events over the weekend. Deposit holders, even the uninsured ones, helped out at the banks at the epicentre of this crisis, but still bondholders, shareholders on the hook. As a result, we've seen many of them back away from banks where there are large uninsured deposits. What do you make of the contagion risk still out there on markets at this stage? Well, Well, let's uh, let's actually see um, when you said bondholders and equity holders are on the hook. You know, let's actually see what happens because uh, this is an extraordinary exercise in complete absence of moral hazard. Uh, I mean, when the chips are down, uh, you can see exactly where the authorities stand, and it's a uh, it's an extraordinary event. Uh, but the numbers are big. I mean, just to, to pause a second, when Northern Rock uh, had a similar run uh, in the financial crisis here in the UK. Northern Rock's uh, total balance sheet was just over £100 billion. Pounds. So this is twice the size of that. We'll give you some idea about the size. And then you add in the systematic risk across the rest of the regional banks. So this was a real crisis. So I think this is a turning point in the interest rate path. I think the market is actually right for once uh, to completely reprice risk uh, in the Treasury market right across the board. So uh, I think that the Fed won't raise rates next week. I think the, the Fed will probably be cutting rates uh, by year end. Uh, so I think the whole move that we've had in Treasury rates uh, since the mid middle of January uh, in response to a perception that the Fed uh, were going to toughen up, the Fed were going to raise rates uh, come what may, has been wrong. Uh, the Fed have shown themselves uh, to be uh, very skittish and very worried about other existential issues. Uh, and let's just take a second and pause and remember what the Fed actually said. The Fed didn't say, or Jay Powell didn't actually say, uh, it wasn't a hawkish commentary uh, when he spoke a couple of weeks ago. It was just a reflection upon what could happen. In other words, if the data and inflation comes through, then they would be prepared to act. Well, if the data and events have changed as they are, then the Fed will take a very different path. So I do see this as a turning point. Something has broken, something has broken pretty big, and we're in a different world and we always always expected this to happen uh whether it was at four percent or five percent nobody knew exactly where the break point was but we've had the break point here Stephen, what was unexpected though was that the market was meant to be focused fixated on cpi today but we're now looking at financial stress here and one of the concerns is if those uninsured deposits start moving from many of the big banks that it starts to try to tighten credit out there in the real economy and could create some form of a downturn a recession What's the chance of that now? Because some are already concerned about the prospect of a hard landing later this year. Do you think the prospect of recession has gone up because of what we're now seeing in the banking sector? I do. And essentially what happens is you tend to get regulatory oversight. You tend to get an overreaction. I mean, this is an enormous failure of regulation. I mean, somehow another the stories are flying around, pretty scurrilous stories about uh, there wasn't a chief risk officer or the chief risk officer was was concerned with a whole lot of other issues that I won't go into and wasn't doing their job at all. So the, the regulators now will be all over banks. 
And of course, what does that mean? That means less money that's lending into the economy. So this is a tightening of, of regulatory conditions, a loosening of financial conditions. The net effect, I think, when the economy was already decelerating, is to see a more muted growth or the, the likelihood of recession later this year. So I agree with you on that one entirely. When it comes to the sell-off in the banking sector, Stephen, we saw all banks sell off yesterday, both the big ones and the regional ones. Obviously, there was some divergence and a number of those regional names underperformed significantly. How do you think about the big players versus the regionals moving forward? And do you think that that trade has played out given the underperformance we've seen already in some of those regional names? I think that's a very good question. I mean, I'm quite comfortable with major banks you know, across the globe, in fact. Uh, you know, this is a case for national champions. Uh, here in Europe, uh, banks like Unicredit, BNP Paribas rallied a great deal in the last three or four weeks. Uh, and I think that the national champion, or in the America, would be the sort of money center banks. I think we've seen that with depositor inflows. I think they're in a pretty good space. So I think you know, the, the slight panic we saw yesterday will probably be balanced with a more measured risk going forward. So there's no risk. I mean, the Fed has underwritten uh, all bank deposits. It makes a mockery of the FDIC uh, limit. And we get the same thing here if we had a, if we had a, a similar run on a, on a regional small bank here in the UK or in Europe. We know absolutely that the authorities would do exactly the same thing. But from the point of view of actually making profits, uh, and paying dividends and, and being a reasonable investment. And I think the national champion stroke money centers uh, are going to be more comfortable in a few days. They'll probably uh, trade back to, to the silver levels they were a couple of weeks ago. Okay, um, fair enough. And, and that's a good insight. Uh, depending on how we see those banks evolve today, could uh, offer some, some more attractive entry points for some of those banks. Mm -hmm. um, let me just take you back to the Fed and uh, where we go from here. Because on the one hand, obviously, the Fed may not want to step in and interfere with the move lower we've seen in uh, bond yields, given that that in itself alleviates some of the, the pain that triggered the SVB crisis in the first place. But on the other hand, you could argue that they should be using some of their other tools to address financial uh, stability concerns, not interest rates. So how do you think about um, the Fed's toolbox from here? I think you're right. I mean, what you're talking about, some sort of macro prudential regulatory uh, oversight that I think inevitably tends to be an overreaction when you've had something like this. I mean, this is a big thing. Just as I said, this is twice the size of North Rock. Uh, this is a pretty substantial failure of U.S. regulation, and there will be a tendency to overreact to that. So you're absolutely right. That will stifle, that will crimp lending, and that will feed into an economy that was already losing some momentum. It's hard to say exactly where the economy was. So I, I, I stick with my call that the Fed have, have reached a limit in terms of interest rates. They'll certainly stop QT, and we will see lower rates for probably 50 basis points by the end of the year. What does it mean for markets? Well, I do think also this is probably the, the, a continuation of the peak in the dollar. I think the dollar has been trading softly uh, for several months since the October highs. Uh, I think in a different interest rate environment, an environment where the US economy is decelerating, where there'll be recriminations perhaps uh, on, on Capitol Hill, we, we know how fractious the political environment is, then I think that actually leads into a, a softer tone for the dollar and actually uh, for investors, emerging markets tend to benefit in this environment where we see a different tone in the currencies and we see uh, softer bond yields. Bond yields, 10-year bond yields are, say, around 360. Uh, I don't see any reason why 10-year bond yields can't buy year and be at 3%. And I think that is supportive, particularly of emerging market and European equities.
The US picture is a little bit less clear. I mean, the excesses that we saw in this whole financial bubble in the last two, three years, most of those were concentrated in the US. They were concentrated in things like California, in, in Silicon Valley, uh, in the tech sector. And hence, hence, there is a bit more air that could come out of that bubble. And we've seen, you know, in this example, it, it could come out quite sharply. So we're not quite sure where other shoes are going to fall. Um, I'm, I'm a little concerned about US assets generally. I think they have a little bit more work to do, a bit more wood to chop. But I think that the picture outside the US is actually quite positive in this very right. new world where we're seeing a peak in, peak in Fed rates and cuts by year end. Stephen, if you're calling 3% on the 10-year yield by year end, that still suggests that there could be a problem on the maturity profile of some of these bank uh, balances because effectively we've got this window now, this bank term funding program from the Fed, a, a loan window for one year. But it does suggest that you're going to see a massive flip on some of those longer duration bonds over the course of one year. Otherwise, we still have a problem, don't we, at the end of the day? And the reality is, if you look at uh, where the bond yield was around 1% or less back when a, a lot of these banks for rolling some of their um, exposures into the longer end of the curve, we're still sitting on enormous bond losses at some of these banks, aren't we? We are. I mean, problems can go away. I mean, there you are. We had a FBIC limit of $215,000, and in theory, uh, all the Silicon Valley bank uh, depositors above that limit should have been torched this morning. Well, guess what? They weren't. So, you know, portfolios can be moved around, creative accountancy can be allowed. Uh, the Fed and other government bodies can take portfolios off banks' balance sheets. So, you know, these problems will not come to the surface. These problems will be massaged away because at the end of the day, moral hazard rules. And that is my message, again, slightly longer term on a, on a two to three, five-year view is that, guess what? Inflation can't be slayed. Um, the ability for the Fed and other central banks to tighten and tighten enough to really right-size the financial system has been shown up very, very abruptly here. So again, investors need to focus on being long-term holders of risk assets and equities because that's the only protection against the long-term problem for this decade, which is that inflation is going to average 4 or 5%, in my opinion. Mm. Stephen, um, fascinating thoughts. Thank you for joining us this morning. Stephen Isaacs, Chairman of the Investment Committee at Alvine Capital. For more on why the bond market's recession warning might be getting a little louder, check out CNBC Pro. Now, later today, as Karen flagged, investors will be hoping for signs inflation stateside will have cooled in February. The CPI print is forecast to have risen 0.4% on the month, down from 0.5% in January. On an annual basis, inflation is estimated to have risen 6%. That's down from 6.4% the month before. Prior to Friday, investors would have looked at today's data as the main driver ahead of the Fed's rate decision next week. But, of course, the collapse of SVB and the threat of contagion in the banking system has raised the possibility the Fed could reverse its course sooner than first thought. Coming up on the show, Credit Suisse publishes its delayed annual report and plans to make meaningful distributions starting in 2025. We'll delve into the details next. And for more on the fallout from SVP's collapse, as well as the latest market action, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. We're still focusing on the banks and at this hour, Credit Suisse uh, in our eyesight uh, as we uh, look at uh, the company confirming its financial results for 2022 as it released its delayed annual report. It was forced to postpone the publication following a request by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. The Swiss lender said there would be no proposal for variable compensation following the disappointing results, but added it plans to return to meaningful dividends by 2025. Can't exactly call this bad timing because the uh, events at Credit Suisse have been ongoing in terms of what it's been reporting to the market, scandal after scandal, a disclosure after disclosure that's been negative and thus culminating in a delayed report and uh, question marks raised by the SEC the other week. The stock price has been under pressure, of course, with the issues around SVB any concerns that investors have around the banking sector have been more heightened. So uh, Credit Suisse uh, dropping to a record low yesterday. We saw credit default swaps also saw 36 basis points to a record high, 453 basis points overall. So we are seeing stress here. And effectively what it means is uh, the company's talking about the future, distributions from 2025 onwards. I believe we're still in 2023. So what we're talking about two years from now, so that is a long time to be waiting around for a distribution. And of course, as we talk about the macroeconomic environment, everything's clearly changed, uh, very different to be forecasting out into the future now in banking world around those distributions. So how much faith do you put into those numbers? And just a final point here, we had heard that there were some serious departures at the managing director level the other week, that this was making it fairly hard to attract talent. And uh, the company saying that they believe they have the right team in place to achieve the strategic, cultural and operational transformation of a bank. So trying to stem some of the concerns around the team when it comes to outflows. And this was the market concern here. Those outflows stabilised to much lower levels had not yet reversed as of the date of this report. So. They're not going back in the opposite direction, but uh, stabilized at a lower level is the tone. You highlight such an important conundrum, I think, for the investment community when it comes to Credit Suisse. How do they attract and retain top talent at the same time they're trying to cut back on costs and deliver this transformation program? So how do you balance paying out enough to keep employees, keep top employees and top performers at the bank at the same time with not jeopardizing the uh, efficiency plans moving forward. You know, when it comes to Credit Suisse as an investment opportunity relative to the other banks, I think the argument that many investors have made, yes, the transformation on offer is attractive, but when we're in a rising rate environment, the uh, alternative European banks look simply better and that the payout's going to come sooner. To your point, 2025 is a long time to wait in an environment where some of the other European banks look more attractive. I wonder if the pullback we've seen now in the last few days and the potentially different uh, ECB rate path from here changes the value proposition of Credit Suisse versus the others. And if we're in a new paradigm, if we're looking at uh, rates lower than previously expected, maybe things change. But I'd say up until the SVB crisis, that was the prevailing view. Credit Suisse, interesting transformation, but other value opportunities a little bit more attractive. It's been seen as systemically important to the Swiss economy, to, to Switzerland. And I think if you look at the client base, it's seen as a hugely important bank. But at this juncture, I think there are question marks 
over the state, the finances of a lot of banks, and Credit Suisse has had to answer that uh, month after month, quarter after quarter. There have been concerns about just how it is positioned to the point where there have been all sorts of different investors brought in. I think the investor that went the opposite way, Harris Associates, is probably thanking its lucky stars, given the decline that we've seen in the share price recently, and just this huge reassessment of the banks in Europe. If you think about how this bank in particular was different to the rest of the banks and how they've traded this week, I mean, this was an underperforming bank because of the the series of execution problems it has suffered. Other European banks have done particularly well, some of them outpacing US peers, which again is highly unusual. But this on the, the NIM story, the net interest margin expansion story, again, that's taken a knock. We've been looking at the SVB story about what it could mean for attracting deposits, what it could mean for the profitability profile of not just US lenders, but European banks as well, whether the ECB can enact its 50 basis point rate hike this week, if we've scrubbed it off the agenda for the US, for the Fed, does the ECB go that far? And what does that mean for the NIMS? So Credit Suisse trapped in this environment as well, as we talk about a European bank. And what it's trying to show us today is trying to trim some of those expectations, but still, uh, I think there are concerns. But uh, we've got to push on. We've got Volkswagen earnings that are crossing at this hour. Uh, The company talking about supply chain issues, it expects easing supply chain bottlenecks in 2023. So some let up there when it comes to those constraints. Investing in combustion engines to decline from 2025. Further investments include digitization in China, growing presence in North America, expanding product portfolio. Volkswagen saying up to 15 billion euros ring-fenced for cell factory construction and raw material sourcing. Over 68% of this investment for electrification and digitization, that is up from 56% in the last five-year plan. So it's stepped up the investment around uh, EV and uh, digital to invest 180 billion euros between 2023 and 2027. So giving us some uh, round figures here on the size of the investment. I think for me, what is key has been the question marks that have been lingering over the battery business because most recently communicated that its expansion plans in Europe were effectively on hold because of the Inflation Reduction Act and that it was pivoting potentially to the US market because of the incentives. So there have been some question marks over that. I think even as we look at the, the tally as to how much it intends to spend in future. I think this um, it, it's quite a good proxy for decisions being made across um, the electric vehicle space. So where do we invest our money in the U.S., where we know there are subsidies available, um, or do we, you know, raise the the pressure on European officials to come up with their own incentives to counter those that have been put forward as part of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. And what's clear, I think, the message from these Volkswagen results: Volkswagen trying to really emphasize their investing big in uh, battery technology and, and, and in battery cell production, um, as well as continuing its focus on China. So that's uh, interesting to see that that is remaining a, a focal point of the company's strategy over the next five years. Well, for more on these results, let's get out to Aneta now. Aneta, we already had a glimpse of what to expect. We got a, a pre-release from Volkswagen earlier in the month. How do these um, results compare to what the market had been expecting? 
Well, actually, what is new is the investment plan and, of course, the uh, focus on North America. It was pretty clear because Volkswagen um, already last year did announce that they are planning on growing their market share in North America from now 4% to 10% by 2030. And, of course, that needs a lot of investment. And the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, does help to propel investment in the North American free trade area. Now it's Canada um, next to uh, the Lake Ontario where they have the plan to um, build that big battery factory. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there will not be another factory also in Europe, but it just needs more time in Europe because regulatory affairs do take longer here in, uh, in the continent. And of course they're waiting for what Brussels is coming up with uh, as a response to the Inflation Reduction Act. So another, I would say, highlight of the release is China. There is a new refocus regional China strategy. Of course, China is a very important market for Volkswagen. And um, as we know, sales did not really uh, lift off as expected, especially when it comes to their electrified vehicles. And that should change now. There's a renewed focus on also developing China-focused technology um, and digitalization strategies for their cars. Um, and that is one big part here in the release as well. Uh, overall, um, Volkswagen calls it a milestone that they delivered 7% of overall deliveries um, in electrified vehicles. And of course, that is bound to grow and that is their strategy. And that, that's why we're also seeing that 180 billion euro investment plan over the next five years, from which 68% should go into digitalization and electrification efforts for the, the overall fleet.